Yeah, boys. <laughs> What's going <Yeah>. on? <laughs> Let's go. Welcome to the You Love Major. to Hear podcast episode 13 with myself, Jamal Cunningham, Casey Willax, and the legend who needs no introduction, but I will give him one anyway. The <laughs> master of Studio 4, the king <laughs> of Baja, California, Scotty B. Uh, thank you so much. I, I uh, I'm I'm deep in in gratitude for all of that. But remember, we go way back. That, hey, we're very grateful we, for all we, that. Scotty. We go way back. I was just looking at. This is weird how it happens. Uh, Casey, how many phone calls have you and I had? Ever? I don't know if there's been a phone call. We know each other for like nine years. Yep. Mm-hmm. No phone calls, but how many times have you received a call from me and me from you that you're coming down? Yeah, it's, a signal. It's a signal. It's a not a call. <laughs> I mean, Scotty's had multiple times that we were on our way down, and he had the gate open, everything ready for us because he just knew we were inbound. We'd be like coming from Tahoe at three in the morning, and Scott's like, "Yeah, I knew you guys were coming." <laughs> <laughs> Or you stumble up to him walking on the beach and you haven't even met yet and he's picking up rocks and you're trying to creep up on him and all of a sudden he just starts saying something to you before you can even get behind yeah. him. You know? That has you're, happened. you're late. Something you're late. intellectual. He goes, you know, I figured something out. You're like, what? And he's like, the um, way that this flows. And you're like, how did you see me? <laughs> yeah, that's You great. know, the, uh, Jamal, this is so weird for me. Well, for a number of reasons, but... I worked for AT&T at Disneyland in an exhibit called America the Beautiful, and it was Tomorrowland. And <laughs> their their motto at that point in time was about the telephone. It's the next best thing to being there. I mean, that's that's where I'm coming from. And we're here. And, the, and we're here. It's like, wow. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's come a long way. Well, how many miles? We're talking 3,000 miles? Yeah, we're an easy 3,000 miles away right now with multiple forms of technology connecting us. It's pretty crazy. We've crossed so many fault lines, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fault lines, state around. lines, country lines, what do you need? <laughs> We've crossed them all. <laughs> yeah, might I say, as we sit here, it is probably two to three foot light. Onshore, but still super manageable. Verde's in the water in front of us. Beautiful, perfect, sunny Baja. Six inches from the water. Yeah, I'm in a a closet here in southern Vermont, but I couldn't be more stoked about it. (laughs) (laughs) It's all perspective, isn't it? Yeah, it is. All part of the bigger journey. I'm shut off from the world in my own little world here. It's not so bad. Well, you know that... You you have you have children in the house now. Well, I actually sent them out of the house for this podcast so that I didn't have too much background noise. But children do live in this house with me. I cohabitate with these children. Yeah. Well, I knew you when. All right. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is gonna <laughs> the, go the, way back. The value of being locked in your little room right there. I get it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's a it's a beautiful thing. It's it's in it's interesting for me because I've known both of you for a long time. I what did you say? Two thousand and fifteen or sixteen? Yep, that's and you about and I, right. Maybe two fourteen, something like that. So it 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 goes from. 
I haven't a clue what I'm going to do. Well, I have an idea of what I'm going to do. But, you know, I remember when it, when it was the nucleus of, of change for you guys. And so to come back now and, and see how developed your career and how settled you've become, that your dreams are coming real. Um, same with Casey, that it's just a, a magnificent thing to witness him rolling up in the Narvi into a parking lot somewhere and, and kids and parents going crazy for him because they just love the Stoke. Yeah, you love to see it. <laughs> yeah, you love... <laughs> you love to see it. Now you you're about to, to love to hear it. it. I feel like we got to take this one way back and start and, and try to stay on a timeline of how I even got down here and how we met and how you've subtly changed and we've changed all throughout it. Yeah, definitely. Scott, I was going to ask you just from the beginning what your first impressions were of the boys. So you can start with Casey because you guys met first. Um, well, that is a very interesting question, but um, I would say from the moment we met, there was um, a level of communication and comfort that for me was very evident. Um We just, I don't know. I mean, it was it was an interesting time. He's down here, you know, managing David Biner's K38 surf house environment. And uh, it was kind of wild times. And I had been down here for a little bit. So, you know, I'm the older, wiser person, I think. The guru. <laughs> Somehow, I always, I always, always felt uh, fatherly. In, in in the context of our relationship with all the with the boys um not really like as a father but just that um the wisdom that i had acquired the little wisdom that i had acquired was something that i was able to impart and share and that the earliest days of us being together um were just really profound really raw really raw right really uh adventuresome years before the vlog years before jamal had anything that he has going on right now you literally years before i even started surfing that was the start of it all so like you were even saying before we started recording it was pretty brutal watching us surf for the first couple of years trying to get the hang of it i bet and it was you know <laughs> looking looking back it still was it was um it's really hard not to be stoked by someone who is clearly stoked yes. you know the the infectiousness of oh my god did you see me think about getting barreled <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh tcap's still living that life right now there <laughs> <laughs> days out front <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wait a minute. I, I think that you're the master leashinator. Oh yeah. I remember I remember you breaking three leashes here one day. <laughs> yep, I remember that day. It was heavy. It was heavy. Oh my god. Yes, yeah, sleeping in the back in multiple different vehicles. You've seen the Ranger, the ninety one Ranger here from the Biner days when I was renting, I guess living at his house and renting the surf house, you've seen Jamal's forerunner, I want to say. Oh, yeah. Came down here. 
Black like Betty. Us, Black Betty. You've seen the red car, us all living back there, Scrizzy, T-Cap, and myself all parked up, wrapped as close as we can around your house, out there doing yard work to make the space a little bit more manageable, washing dishes and stuff, and hi to the neighbors and just supporting all that. Like, I 100%. <laughs> Had the wagon circled against the attack by yeah. Rudy. Yeah. <laughs> For the, we, were, we were the protection and like 100% support that like father-like figure of what was going on where you had the place dialed in and a place for us to feel like at home and secure and help us learn and grow in the water while like your dance thing was going on and just the meshing flow of we all needed each other was it was so amazing. We still we still do. You know, but. Yeah, Scott, yeah, I, think, uh, I think it was huge too that you could be out there and able to watch us surf and give us give us feedback on what we're actually doing surfing, just like we look for when we go back and watch film. But a step past that, you were giving us the local knowledge that you can only get from sitting on the beach. <laughs> like there's two different types of local knowledge at a surf spot. There's somebody who surfs that spot all the time. You know, they pull up, they get out of their car, changing their wetsuit. They're at that wave all the time. They know how the wave performs. But it's a different angle when you're looking at it from the beach all the time. So you had such a better perspective on where to catch waves, what wave was working at this tide or that tide. And it helped us so much because you had such a deep knowledge of how the vortex worked out there. You know, that <laughs> helped us tremendously. Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I think that. There, there are two points that I can remember that are uh, that were in video that I would say marked a real change in what I saw in your ability as a surfer, and that was um, it was hurricane shit back yep. east. Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was really rough, but uh, I watched you getting barreled. Yep. You know, and once once you've had that, right? Not it, just thinking about it. No, not actually just thinking, going for it now. I, I mean, and taking the beating. Take, taking that thing on the head, you know, and then you went to, uh, uh, was it Costa Rica? What, where was the... Early, I went to Costa Rica. I think I went to Costa Rica in 2017, maybe. Yeah, 2017, because I was living in Lake Tahoe. Um, yep. And then... No, you were living down here when you made the, this trip that I'm talking oh, about. Oh, the Indonesia trip. You did an Indo trip, that's right, before I went. Did you only go to, did you, you didn't go to Nicaragua and Costa Rica? He went to El Salvador. Sep he oh, El Salvador. Costa Rica. That was it. You went to and a camp. To, yeah. A place yeah. that was about surfing, right? Yes. yes. That, I remember, um, I saw a different dynamic from you at that point in time, as if the light had gone off, gone on, and, and you were seeing the lines. You were moving the wave differently and managing Managing the wave instead of getting managed. You yeah. Know? You know what the biggest really, part of that was? It was really cool. Figuring out how to bottom turn. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I feel like it goes for all sports, snowboarding, surfing, anything is having that home wave, which you talked about, where you feel comfortable and you can only feel so comfortable there for so long before everything you learned, you go apply somewhere else. And then when you show up there and you feel like, you know, you got your surfing dialed, you, there's that 
point of like humblingness where you got to get it figured out. But then once you're there surfing for a while in a new wave and like you feel like you've grown outside your home, then when you come back, oh yeah, you have all this new, not only skill, but like this mindset, which is like, psh, whether it's, oh, that was reef and the, rock and the gnarly. Next step. And now I'm coming home and I know exactly where that rock is, or I know exactly how that jump is or that takeoff, however you want to look at it. I know this, where this wave barrels and you're just like that new confidence is huge yeah i think that's what exactly that was it that was indonesia for me majorly because i surfed some first of all me and biner surfed uh me and biner surfed at impossibles and it was i don't know you would have to get the biner scale for how big it is on this he was it, he was saying eight um, to ten he was saying it was massive. yeah dude it was very big and it's obviously it's it's a it's not a big wave spot but it's not a it's not a barreling spot. So like it's a big, big, heavy rolling wave, but just being out in surf of that magnitude, like being out and with that much swell in the water was so intense, dude. Oh, it was so intense. And it, but it was awesome. I had one of the best sessions I've ever had, but after that, you know, it's, it's maximizing what you think your ability is. You get to something that's, you take a set wave. That's 11 feet. You come back home and there's a six foot wave rolling through and you're like, dude, let's go. <laughs> you know, you don't even think twice about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Between that and then the men's trip of surfing over just a lot of shallow reef. And then you come back home to sand or to like cobblestone. Like cobblestone feels friendly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we could even talk about the difference in having a leash. And I feel like we should go back even further because we're right now, current moment or even recent past. But Scotty was surfing in Ensenada before we were even born, before leashes were even a thing. Can you give us a breakdown on the whole where you grew up and your family hanging out down there? Cause I was down there that time for your birthday and that was a special moment. Um, it was, I, I feel very blessed that that experience was part of my youth. Cause I mean, it definitely, it changed me forever. Uh, 1960, my parents bought a house in Ensenada. I was 10 um, Ensenada was still very primitive. It was only about 30,000 people at that point in time. And uh, I was 10 years old. I'd gotten my first surfboard, and I was the only one that was out in the water. It was just amazing, and there were no leashes at that point in time. So I'm 10 years old, and I've got a 9'6 surfboard that weighs a freaking ton. And if you fall... That barge it just floats. It floats forever, <laughs> so it goes all the way in. It's like that dynamic of, you know, as I matured as a surfer, you know, you're, you're sitting up on top of a six-foot wave, and you don't have a leash, and it's like, that's a long swim. <laughs> you know? And that pause that used to exist without the leash was the difference between getting barreled and getting hammered, mm -hmm. literally. Just the pause itself. It's like if you, if you didn't dial that first moment, your chances are certainly a great deal slimmer of any success. But when the leash came along, it got real different. It got real different. You started to see people carving off the bottom. Like you mentioned, I learned to bottom turn. Well, until you understand the whole thing is about gravity, centrifugal force, weightlessness, um, 
it's just never going to be very rewarding. But um, that's what the leash changed. And when the leash came, I had my basics, man. I could nose ride like a machine. <laughs> yeah. That's what that big board was all about, you know. And I lived on a beach break. But um, once the leash came, then I could go to San Miguel. Then I could go to 3M's. Then I could go to Cannery and not worry about actually dying, you know. And uh, yeah, I can remember. I can remember some of those very first moments with a leash on, hitting the bottom and and just ripping off that, and it's never the same after that. <laughs> and what year was that? Well, I was trying to remember. I, I can't exactly remember, but by the time I was about 14 years old, I had been surfing for four years all the time. It was the only thing I thought about. And were you living down here full-time at that place, or was that a vacation you were back and it, forth? It was a vacation. My father was a, a surgeon and was very, very busy, so it'd be every other weekend, roughly, we would come down here. And from? Then every, from Riverside. Okay, so aren't you from only the same area hours. as Daly? Uh, that was later. That was up in Concord, and where the Concord Pavilion was. Okay, so you were coming down from Riverside on the weekends. Yeah, and, um, you know, every vacation. And then when summer would come, he would dump us off. So my mother and my younger brother and I were down there all summer long. I surfed every minute of every day. It was a beautiful thing. What an awesome place really to be dumped beautiful. off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was something. You know, you know the Husong's Cantina? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, my father was a surgeon, and he became Walter Husong's doctor. Whoa. So I remember as a kid, Walter Husong walking into our house, and then a little bit later on, remember getting drunk in his bar. <laughs> well, that so escalated quickly. Down here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so how long was it? How long did your parents keep the house until you were to want to stay down here? Or was there a gap in living in the U.S.? Well, when I was um, unfortunate, well, I can't say unfortunately. Just the reality was at 18, um, my girlfriend got pregnant and we decided the noble thing to do would be to get married because we thought we were in love. So um, at that point in time, life, life assumes a different dynamic, you know, and um, I left to go to college and found out she was pregnant when I was in my freshman year up at St. Mary's in the Bay Area. And uh, so that kind of made surfing very difficult at that point in time. So at about 25, I really stopped. It was just too hard to get it done anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I could see uh, a world where all those things come crashing down at once and you kind of forget about it for long enough that it's hard to even get back to it. It is. You know, if, if, if you get to... It'd be like in martial arts, you train like a beast to accomplish, you know, that next belt or whatever it is, but... If you stop the training and then just go back, you're going to get your ass beat. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know it, just, it just doesn't work that way. You know? yeah. So the same thing was true with me with surfing was I was away from it for a long time. 
And it was something that I was incredibly passionate about. It was a spiritual experience for me. And once I had cut that relationship as a surfer, um, it just was so unsatisfying to come back on a half-assed way, I guess, and expect something other than just an ass whipping. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I've had a, I mean, it's a joyful thing for me to watch um, my young friends develop not just the love of surfing, but the ability and the respect of it and what it does for us as people when we have that relationship with the ocean. Yeah, CW, you and I have talked about that a bit. I don't know. I don't know if we talked about it on the pod at all, but we've had that conversation a few times where it's like, depending on, depending on how you think that life started, if uh, people who are into evolution or whatever it may be, there's a lot of science that says that all life came from the ocean at one point. And for you to just get back in the ocean regularly and surround yourself completely inside of it, it just feels like you're at home, you know? Not to mention that we're made up of more than 80% water, whatever yeah. the percent may whatever be. Whatever that number is. We Everything are t- about we are it. We are tidally impacted. And then yeah, not, even by, not even by conscious decision, then you look at all the major cities and all the population, and it's all on the 1% of the borders of where the ocean is and where the water is, and people live by the lakes, and it's just everything about water is so rewarding. And then when you com- combine us and our energy and the ocean and the release, everything comboing, I feel, almost feel like for the people at home, they need to really realize that Scotty is living with all of the conditions that happen every storm every hurricane every tide shift every swell shift hits is hitting his actual front porch where he stands and wakes up and drinks coffee right i'm sure you guys have seen in the youtube videos and depending on swell direction and size and tide and moon and everything is actually a part of it and he lives on this line and has had his front window shattered by litter like giant mac trucks smashing through his house allowing for the waves to then have no barricade and opening up the back doors and letting the ocean flow through his house instead of fighting it the guy works with things never never fight stuff well bamboo (laughs) full bamboo style (laughs) and and he has this not even theory he's got this this breakdown of what it's like to live here and why it's so intense and it's called the vortex and i feel like we should get a front to back breakdown of what what is the vortex where we live in right now for the people um i will explain that I, thank you for asking me that's a oh man am i ever addicted to that story uh, you, you you described something jamal that um it just pleases me immensely you described the experience of being in a wave with your hands in a way that indicated you understood that it was a connection to an energetic source that we seek. Our ability to connect to that is, in my opinion, what gives that incredibly elevated feeling that you get when you know you're one with the wave. Oh yeah, and I feel I feel so badly for so many men that I watch that think it's about bullying the bitch, 
that they're going to go out and dominate that wave. And it's just not that way. Even the best surfers, I feel like, that have managed to... Uh, even the best surfers who, in some ways, dominate their lineup, they still know that they don't dominate the ocean. Even if they yeah. dominate the domain of their home break, even if they're the top dog, they get every wave they want, they are still fully aware that they do not dominate the ocean. You have to work with it or it won't work with you. And and I think that also, on like the, the vortex point, that's why the barrel is that thing that you're you're chasing forever because you're like fully enveloped in the wave. There's a step, there's the step one of being in the ocean, step two of flowing with the wave and being able to ride it. But there's another level where once you're literally encapsulated by the ocean, like those seconds in there are it like, I wouldn't trade them for anything. It's like, it's a different feeling than anything else. That's where that, you know, the, the cliche, only a surfer knows the feeling comes from. I feel like, because once you're, fully immersed inside of a wave and you come back out to reality it's like all your senses come flooding back to you all at once it is a super intense feeling i've ne i've never seen a warning label anywhere but i could tell you for a fact that is the strongest addiction imaginable 100 once you've been inside that's all you want to do yeah could not agree more a, a full barrel hoe <laughs> yeah. Two tubes and an ollie. Yeah. So let's talk about the vortex thing. The V. Um, I, you know, I had heard about vortex locations before and knew vaguely about what it was, and but not living there, it just wasn't really high on my list. Anyway, um, Researching a little bit more about what a vortex is, it's literally an environment that is controlled by energy that's released from the center of the earth. Electromagnetic energy coming from the center of the earth. So places like uh, Sedona. Oh, okay. Is, uh, super popular vortex kind of thing. And it's because there are openings, there are craters, there are fissures, there are caves, there are places and rivers that go deep, like really deep. Yep. And there's an energy that gets released that um, has an impact on the environment. So here, I mean, literally living in the ocean um i i became very much aware of a lot of different things that um were unusual that were impactful um things like surfers told me that the water here was four or five degrees colder than it was anywhere else around that it was always bitter and i'm like well like, well, water is dictated by currents. So that means that there is some sort of a current running through there that's making it cold. And then I started noticing that there was a very long... Well, first of all, this particular beach is unusual because it faces south. And most things that occur 
along the coast occur from the west going to the east. So there was, um, there is, but I began to notice a very long strip of smooth surface that went from the west up by Calafia all the way down to the sand dunes, Los Arenales and Primotapia. And I'm like, it's a straight line. What the hell is that? Well, then I could see that it was seaweed. You could see that this, you know, that's probably what, a kilometer, two, three kilometers long, something like that? Maybe, maybe it's five kilometers long. Yeah, probably closer to five. Seaweed is only going to grow where there is nutrition, nutrients, and sunlight. So something was feeding this on a straight line. I'm like, what the hell could that be? It would, to me, it sounded like maybe there was a cliff line down there and somehow nutrients were rising up. And then the next thing that came along was it was very foggy and yet there was no fog in here. And it looked like a curtain had been drawn out there that was blocking the fog from, from coming in here. And I'm like, what, what the heck is that? So then you realize fog is sensitive to the surface temperature that it's near. If it's warm, then it's light and it moves very quickly. If it's cold, then it gets thick and it's going to move slowly. So... Fog being drawn into, like, Primotapia to the east is a suction. When the hot air rises in the desert, it creates a suction. It pulls the fog in behind it. The fog being sensitive to the surface temperature, because this is colder on this side of that line of seaweed, the fog just bypasses it because it's warmer on the other side. And my theory was that there's a cliff line down there, and it must have a crack that's allowing the nutrients to come up from, the, from below the ocean surface and feed that seaweed line. <clears throat> but it was always just a theory, and I'm like, and why the hell are those sand dunes down there? Yeah, I never understood there's only, that either. There was only, there's only one place. And I'm like... That's weird. It's like a mini- miniature desert just off of the highway. All by itself. It's gold, gold at the end of the rainbow. I asked yeah. a, uh, uh, a master's degree student in geology what he thought that was. And he said, well, I think it's eroding dirt terrain in the mountains back here in the valley. And the wind blows it out and deposits it there. And I'm like, one valley? Dude. Yeah, no, the sand dunes are huge. So yeah, but you just—it wouldn't be one place. There'd be other valleys that were eroding, and the wind was blowing it out. But there, there isn't. So, I thought about it some more, and I thought, when the north swells come, it comes raging down the coastline, and as it goes down the coastline, it's scraping stuff with it, being sand in many places. They. In the winter, they're like, oh, our beaches are gone. Well, no, we just moved it down south a little bit. (laughs) But what happens is when it gets to Calafia, which is a 
point that sticks out, if you go around the corner, you come to El Morro in Bahia Descanso. But if you go continue straight down, it goes to Ensenada. So what happens is, in, in my theory, was the general current is taking the bulk of that sand towards Ensenada. Some of it gets trapped on the inside of where that cold current is. And because that cliff line goes all the way down, it has nowhere to escape until it gets to the very end, which is Los Arenales, the sand dunes. So it's a depository for shifting sands from, from uh, the northern, northern swells. That makes quite a bit of sense. It's, well, it's, I th- I, well, it makes sense, but, you know, admittedly, I smoke a lot of weed. So. <laughs> <laughs> We've all come up with some crazy concocted theories. Yours yeah, might just yeah, be yeah. right, though. <laughs> so the other day, um, somebody showed me Google Earth. I hadn't even thought about looking at it. But it's right here, right here. When you when you expand it out, you can see there is a mountain line. Remember the the island that sits out there, Jamal? Yeah. Uh, what is All it? Right. Uh, Pan, Pan Dulce. Yeah. There they, we go. <laughs> cupcake, uh, Birdshit Island. But um, that's the tip of a mountaintop that's on this range of mountains that you can see in in Google Earth. You can literally see it running along below where the sea the seaweed line is so then there were other things that were written that were talking about the volume of seismic activity that's around here the number of of dormant volcanoes on the ocean floor so my theory is when the lava flowed down originally it gets to a certain point and then there was a separation and there's a big cliff line that's there. And where those two, the ocean floor and the cliff line meet, because one is lava and one's another sediment, there's a separation. So there's a fissure along that that just allows the escape of this thermodynamic stuff. There are places all over, like the beach in La Jolla, uh, uh, out by the blowhole, mm-hmm. La Bufarora. Oh, yeah. yep. You can dig with a shovel, and the water that comes up is, is, is thermal hot. Oh, that's yeah, like cool. right there on the beach. Yeah, yeah. And it's I because mean, hot springs. of springs. Yeah, thermal tubes coming out. They're like all over the place. Yeah, this just happens to be under the ocean, which isn't that crazy because it's the biggest land mass that we have. So Dude. it was very interesting to um, look on Google Earth and have it validate what I was just thinking. That's the cool thing about being retired, man. <laughs> yeah, you got time. <laughs> Dude, I was just thinking that, though. As you're saying that, Scotty, I'm like, yo, we need to be Google Earthing more surf spots. Me and C-Dub like to do our little dive where we'll go out and we'll go surfing and we'll be like, hey, you want to do... Spot check. A quick spot check. And we'll just Grab some sand. hop off our it's boards. How scared are you? How scared are you to... Oh, my God. Wherever spot you are, whether it's black, whether it's like dirt and orange or sandy, like... Or reef, whatever. Or moss, just go down come back up with something prove that you went down there yeah we both we both have like used it to get over our fear of the unknown below us where we're like if we're gonna surf here i'm gonna dive to the bottom of this as long as the spot allows for you to get to the bottom and i'm gonna get all the way down there as far as i can even if i'm going through kelp beds which is terrifying by the way Uh, it's the worst uh, even if we were out there on low tide standing there being like okay this is what's here the tide comes up we can paddle out 
spot check. You're like, hey, can, can I can I tell you a, a, a let me tell you a scary story about 3Ms and kelp? Oh boy, this is before the leash was invented, and my buddies and I, two other, two brothers and myself, there are three of us out there in this. It was so glassy. It was bizarre. It was just absolutely weird looking. And it was about 12 feet. Constant 10-foot waves. Couple sets, 12 plus. And it was this big pitching. It had this lip that threw over and made this perfect tube. And it was a very short ride. But with with a big-ass board with no leash, that first takeoff thing was scary as hell. Oh, I bet. And where you had to sit and wait for the waves, it was in a kelp bed. So that kelp is, like, sliding up and down your legs. And we didn't have wetsuits on. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. And the, the kelp is running up your legs. And you don't know if that's a seal or some other shit. It's just really freaky. Well, we were out there, and... It was big, and it was frightening, and all of a sudden we look, and there's this gigantic black fin. I mean, I've never seen anything that big in my life, and I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to die. You know, that's an orca or something, and we're like, well, what do we do? You know, because you don't have leashes, and it's big as hell. Are you going to catch a wave and ride it on your stomach? And you're certainly not going to catch a wave and run the risk of losing your board. Yeah, this monster's pull in. Coming to eat you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the ultimate level of send. If you pull in while there's any type of fin in the water. <laughs> <laughs> there was really no hesitation. It was just a whole lot of paddling going down. And uh, we, we got in and there was a man that had been watching us from the clips. And we got up there and we're so freaked out. And he said, don't worry, boys. It's a pilot whale. They... They eat oh. mud, mud or something. Yes, right. they don't. They don't. They don't eat people. Oh man, like that. that that would have scared me to death, though. That's understandable. Wow. I like oh, to think every so time frightening. I'm every time I'm surfing out here, I like to think that I get to bask in all those nutrients from the vortex coming up. Oh yeah, major major healing properties. I mean, people go soak in you know hot springs high on a mountain or those mountaintop lakes because they're so dense in minerals and they feel like they have healing properties. It's like, you're getting the same thing out front of Scotty B's for sure. And then you're getting hooked up with coffee and food. Whenever you come in, you're, you're just being, you're being pampered by the entire area. <laughs> I am currently watching a crystal clear current cruise by with tiny little runners, sacred geometry built all over the, the window in front of me and birds just gliding effortlessly. through. Yo, right C-Dub, now. remember at Scotty's standing on the porch and me and you, or no, we weren't on the porch. We were in the water, but out at middles there. And we saw that Pelican get barreled. Yes. Yo, we watched, cause you know, Scotty, obviously you see it all day. Oh man. You watch the Pelicans and they fly right along the crest of the wave. Like they follow the line perfectly. So there's a whole, they fly in a straight line most of the time. So they fly in a straight line and they come down right onto the lip of the wave. And there's one that's tailing all the way in the back. And so these pelicans all come down the lip of the wave. And the one guy, he's kind of trying to catch up, he backdoors it because he's late to the party. And the thing just pitches over him. And me and C-Dub watched a pelican, wings fully spread on both sides, come in and out of a barrel. It was so insane. We freaked out. <laughs> yeah, that's how we do here. Yeah, even the pelicans that's, that's are getting That's what we shacked. call entertainment. Unreal. Yeah, that was Brought awesome. Brought to you live on Channel 4. 
Yeah, oh, that man, that was a moment. See, how about how about your animal experiences outside at, at middles? Oh, we, we'll get there. I gotta, I gotta <laughs> breathe into that one first. The animal kingdom. I I, I want to get to the final part of the rocks and the ions and. So, yes, thank you for dragging me back into this. That's my job. <laughs> the um, the world is is it's electromagnetic, period. There is no debate. And we are a machine. We are an electromagnetic, very complicated, complicated wired system. And there is, with some frequency, an imbalance that occurs in our own electromagnetic being. And you have free radical ions cruising around looking for a place to land, looking for love in all the wrong places. And free <laughs> radicals um, have been tied very closely to the majority of very significant contemporary illnesses like cancers and other gnarly stuff. But um, the human design is to be magnetically connected to the earth the Mother Earth has, just like in our body, a system of veins that feeds the electromagnetic energy into the surface of the Earth, and all of the plants, the trees, and every living being requires that energy to thrive. So, earthing is a process of walking on the Earth barefooted, and look, see, he's got it. So... The, your feet, like in Chinese medicine, have always had, you know, all of those, I don't know what the correct word for the points are, but they are, the specific points in your feet are receptors for all the organs in your body. So by walking in connection with the earth, you're completing a electrical circuit that is able to bring your body back into balance to to manage the free radical ions that are floating around and causing diseases. The biggest injustice, well, your magazine article will tell you about it, but when the advent of the tennis shoe happened, it disconnected. See, it's not an accident. That synthetic soul is part of a very ugly plot to disconnect people from the earth, which gets them sick, which perpetuates a medical pro. Don't get me going here, but no, Scotty, whole- we're getting you going because I could not agree more. It, it's it's not accidental. It was, you know, they took the indigenous people who they walked barefooted. You know, they didn't get sick. Cancer was not an an indigenous thing, um, because they were barefooted. They were always in balance. They were always electromagnetically tuned properly. And um, here, what I feel happens, and and I, I bet it can happen with an instrument, that they could go out and measure the electromagnetic energy that's right here by this line that we're speaking of. But I also feel that I've seen a lot of UFOs, by the way. 
Yeah, you've, we've talked about that a few times down there. Would you, would you believe? Would you trust me if I told you that? I mean, oh. it's, it's a weird thing, I, but I have video of all of it, so I'm not stupid. But in reading about <laughs> UFOs, it says a lot about them being attracted to areas that have high concentrations of electromagnetic energy. Like Sedona has a shit ton of, of sightings. Off of San Diego, they have tons of them. Same thing and with uh, Mount Shasta. Well, exactly, because they're all volcanic in nature and have an open access that goes to the center of the earth. And I think that's, that's how they recharge their systems. That's yeah. a gas station for UFOs. And I think you might be right that what well, might be, might not be is irrelevant, but I think you're correct in saying that that separation of us from the earth has come through, the, like you said, through the tennis shoe and just through like a general idea that we don't need to always be connected to the earth. Like the idea of getting outside barefoot, letting the sun into your eyes has gone by the wayside because we have so many conveniences that we don't need to do that. You know, you don't have to go hunt your food. You don't have to, there's so many things that humans used to have to do that actually kept them both physically and spiritually in line with the earth that we just don't have to do anymore. You have it's to seek them. because they're it. free and they can't be profited off of. You really have yes. to seek them and you have to have someone that's going to teach you what you're what you're seeking. Yeah, and there's supplements that do the same thing, or so they say, that costs $80 a month when you could, like you said, just go get sunlight in your eyes, which yeah. would allow the same chemicals Why to do the same things. Why go through all that bother? Yeah. You could stay this. inside and just spend money and just take supplements or do things, all these biohacks, when really, with a chronological sleep schedule, eight hours, sunlight in the eyes, 30 minutes of movement every couple hours is all of the same things that you spend all these hundreds of dollars on every month. Yep. I, uh, I've felt it recently where I have granted it's been around me for so long that I've kind of, it's always been in the back of my head, but lately I've had the most primal urge that I want to go hunting this next hunting season. Cause I'm like, dude, I just want to kill my own food. Like that seems yeah. like such a, you know, it's not even the fact of like, Oh, it's just so manly to go out and go hunt and kill your own food. It's like primal in the sense of surviving and feeding your family like just taking the time out of your day to go out into the woods find something that's alive kill it and bring it back home for you to eat like that just sounds so amazing to me there's only one difference between those two scenarios that i can see and that's the intention behind the action yep i mean as far as i can see i'm a, I'm a pacifist basically until until it's time not to be I feel and that I have no I have no hesitation about doing what's necessary, but I feel that that concept that you're speaking is so forgotten, and being able to go hunt and and secure something that you have a pretty good idea has lived a, a good life with with a proper diet and all of that. Um, I don't know, I just. It just makes sense. Yeah, the majority of people don't don't are so disconnected with actually what they're eating. And if we were to be able to see and make the decisions from the beginning, like when you're looking at the end result or the dollar amount or something, when you want to spend a couple extra dollars, if you actually could see the life of that, then 
doing it yourself opens up a whole nother connection like we're talking about with what we're already doing. If you're eating, you're, that's happening. So going and doing it yourself, whether it's picking the berries and bringing it home to the family or slaughtering the animal and catching it yourself. It's catching like, fish, same thing. Almost, it's like, it should almost be mandatory. See, though, remember going to the, to the lighthouse and seeing those fishermen and they go out every re- morning. Yep. You got to renew your license every five, ten years. You got to go, what What have you been eating? You got to go kill a couple of things that you've been eating and help, you know what I mean, butcher them and freeze them and see, like, you can't. You, you, said, you said it should be mandatory. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I, have a, I have a thought that, to me, it's one of the most ridiculous things ever that the skill of growing your own food of how to hunt and why you would hunt and what you would hunt, those kinds of things should be taught to children. Mm-hmm. Yes. That it's not like, oh, shit, I'm 30-something or I'm 70-something and I got to figure out what's going to happen if the big one hits. I mean, how many people do you know that are in their 20s that can't even just cook for themselves, let alone kill a deer or catch a fish like i know people who can't even cook their own food from the grocery store a lot of people one of the biggest recommendations i have is make a cookbook yeah yep that's true because some people just need the instructions because they see these meals at the end and they're like what just happened and i've been there and you don't understand even comprehend how to make it work takes years yeah isn't that isn't that a funny thing um there's a common thread that I feel exists in all of my young friends, my brothers, that um, they all love their mothers. They all have a, a really a profound relationship with their moms. And w- with me, one of the things, and I think I've seen this with most of you guys, is that... Um, the kitchen is a bitching place to be, man. Oh, yeah. You're being able to cook. That's where the action's like, going down. It's like, boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the energy for everything we're trying to do, you know? Yep. Trying to shred six to ten hours a day, even two hours a day every day. You can't do that if you don't put the right fuel in your body. Yeah. It was interesting. When, when, when Laura moved here, um, it's nice to be able to say that without having to grind my teeth. Um, but when when she moved here, <laughs> she was so afraid of the kitchen. I'm like, what? Is, what do you mean? Well, I I can't do this without a recipe. And I'm like, it's cereal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just start throwing stuff in bowls, pour stuff on it, see what works. She was so afraid, oh. and and by the by the end, I got her. Oh, she was cooking every time we came over. She like, had sandwiches, taco, all these oh, yeah. amazing, epic things, and it, and it gave her a really great feeling, connection, yeah. Fe- giving someone the energy to continue. She liked looking living. at both your ass. Real she liked looking at your ass, but you know, yeah, literally. People, well, people talk about that even when you know somebody goes through a death in the family. It's like, or, or you know, loses a friend, and you know they're in a rough time. Cooking them food is one of the most genuinely thoughtful things you could do because. The last thing that's usually on their mind is getting up and going to the kitchen and feeding themselves. They're in a grief process. If you can just present them with something to sustain their life while they're like dealing with the loss of another life, it's such a truly thoughtful thing because it's the last thing anybody wants to think about when they're going through something like that. You know, so, it's like 
dropping something that, off on their doorstep goes a long way. That's that's very biblical. It's really beautiful. It's it's a very beautiful spiritual gesture to think that way. But there's also science in that. Because someone who's going through that grieving process and isn't eating properly now has deprived themselves of the chemicals and chemistry and interactions in their body that fuel the right kinds of emotions that make you feel better. Excuse me. Yep, and to repair. Yep. So the thing they call comfort food, it has a scientific back behind it that 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 beautiful human gesture of bringing nourishment um, is not just for the soul, but it actually modifies the way they think. Yeah. I f- I've, I've never thought better. of that. Thank you. That's not because it's because you're not old and sitting on a couch all day. <laughs> True that. <laughs> all right. Um, well, I feel. What did we want to touch on? I feel like I wanted to go into. You had said you were living down here, the fam, on the weekends, and then the summers and everything, and then you moved up. You had the kid. And you kind of got away from surfing. And then there's this massive part of your life, which is super important to you, which is the whole photography career. And you've been full front man, KOG style, touring around the world, famous rock star. But we don't really know all of the details. I've got bits and pieces of it. Where do we even start? How, where was the passion? How did it all become? You know I can't tell you everything. Of course. <laughs> oh, I, I, boy, it's a funny thing to sit here and talk about yourself. You know, I'm I'm a hermit. I I live like a monk. That yeah, you do actually. I've always thought that about you. So uh, this is your time to brag. Of, speaking, of, well, I don't. Wanna, I don't. I've never. It's been, a, let's just say, it's been a long time since I felt the need to do something in that form of bragging, you know, it's like, it, not, check me out, check me yeah, out. Yeah, it's like, not even a brag, just remove I, the humbleness. I don't, I, don't, I don't even leave here unless I have to. <laughs> sometimes when you do heavy, epic stuff all the time, like, it seems normal, but like, you have to step away from being humble sometimes and look and be like, okay, I've accomplished things in my life that I wanted to. I've done major stuff and I need to be able to share that with people to give them motivation because it's not normal for a lot of people. So, so there you go. That's intention. The intention, this is how I was raised. My father was a very famous surgeon. I mean, world famous written up in everything. He did, uh, Developed a ton of different surgeries for cancer. Um, my mother was a very accomplished artist and a pianist, and she was a very beautiful and graceful woman. There were really great examples growing up. And I can remember when, when it, it was always, it was felt that I was going to be a doctor. You know, I was a smart kid. I was born handsome and had good social skills, and it was just, you know, oh, you're Dr. Belding's son, you know. And I remember I was 10 years old, and he took me on rounds with him into the hospital to see some of his patients, and he took me to see this little old man who was 80 years old, and he was 
He was bald. He was he looked like Auschwitz, man. He was so skinny. And we walked into his room, and the man was propped up a little bit, but his eyes were closed. And my father says, Mr. So-and-so, hi, hi. And the man didn't really respond very well. And he said, I brought my son Scotty here to see you. And um, he reached his hand out and, and took my hand. And when he touched me, um, his eyes opened up and he, they twinkled. I could actually see that my physical touch affected him. And my father said, here, just, you know, step back. I need to check his, his wound, his dressings. And um, so I did, and I said goodbye to him. And my father said goodbye, and we're walking out. My dad put his arm around me as we're going through the doorway, and he said, that man will die in two weeks. And I'm like, oh, maybe cry. You know, maybe really. Yeah, 10 years old, that's pretty heavy. Well, I think there's certain personalities that can can accept things like that better than others. And I wasn't one of them. I was more sensitive, I guess. But anyway, I remember telling him, I, I, I don't want to be a doctor. You know, that, that wasn't good for me. And I remember him putting his arm around me and he said, it doesn't really matter what you decide to do in life. What matters is that you apply 100% of your ability to whatever it is, or you will disappoint yourself and everyone else around you. And wow, it was just, <laughs> yeah, that can be mistranslated. Like you ain't never going to be good enough, you know? <laughs> no, I think I picked it, it no, up it can't. correctly. Yeah, because you could be terrible at it, but if you're just putting your all in, that's all that matters. Yeah, that's that's a big story is just staying in your lane, like finding your lane and staying in your lane. Because but you got to find you it. you are content and you're happy because you know you put the work in, that will show. And then people will see you and they'll see how you're admitting yourself. And it's not a joke. You're not unaccomplished. You're doing everything you can. And that is always beautiful. Yeah, that's that's awesome. <laughs> So I, I mean, for me, I, I was, I was raised to believe that there were no limits in my life. There was nothing that if I chose, I could. Um, no one ever said anything negative to me until I got to be eighteen. That was different. <laughs> yeah, the world has a way of crashing down on you at that yeah. age. Damn Timothy Leary at that point in time. <laughs> um, yeah, so that greatness thing. Boy. Quite a pathway, isn't it? So so continue us into, into the art photography career. How did that develop? Um, actually, I went off to go to college up in the Bay Area, which took me away from, from surfing. But at that same point in time, I guess I can tell a psychedelic story, can I? Oh, for um, sure. Oh, yeah. My daughter's mother became pregnant. I was 19 when my daughter was born. We were married at 18. It was ridiculous. The chance in hell that that's going to last. We were really poor. I worked my ass off while I was going to college. And while I was going to college... Um, 
one day I was a really good buddy of mine, Rafael Quesada. He was a crazy guy from Guatemala. <laughs> but uh, we took acid. And I used to live in this pear orchard. And right behind the house was a big creek. And when there would be big rains in Northern California, it would wash you know the banks away. And it expo- we took acid and we were walking down in this riverbed. And I found a, a bed of clay in this bank. And, and I started putting my hands into it. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It feels... I got hooked. And I, I immediately started taking ceramics classes in college. And it hooked me. Oh, that's I, awesome. Yeah, I changed my major. I did a bunch of shifting around. I ended up with a teacher that was just my hero. He was so talented. And, and his whole thing was he wanted to teach me. You know, he wanted to, want me to know. So he showed me how that mentor-student relationship, and we were friends. We used to get high together and... It was really cool. So when I was in college, my plan was to be a ceramic major to get a teaching credential to teach it at a college level and still do my art. So, um, you know, push comes to shove and things change. And I did that for about two years out of college. I had a business. It was called Tantra Pottery. It was down in the ghetto in Oakland and we made these handmade candle holders that were to accompany this handmade candle that these other hippies were making. It was a crazy time. And and this is a long road to get all the way up to to this dance business, but um, things just didn't work out very well, and I grew very weary of turning something that was very beautiful and meaningful to me into a paycheck, that it changed the context and nature of, of my art into something that just didn't palette well with me. And my that ex at that time and I were having difficulties and there was a lot of, a lot of challenges that went on. Um... We separated. She moved to Southern California. I decided I was going to go to Southern California as well because my daughter was with her. I wanted to be around them. And I decided, screw it, man. I don't, I don't want a business where I have people working for me or anything like that anymore. I don't want to make art for a living. I just want a job. And I just put out applications, and the telephone company hired me. I'm like, whoa. I go from being a hippie smoking weed all day long, making ceramics, in a warehouse in the ghetto to working for probably one of the straightest companies on earth. And I got hired as a long distance operator. Do you have to wear a suit? Um, no, I did not have to wear a suit, but I was the only, I was the third man that had ever been hired as a long distance operator. So here's this, this old fashioned cordboard with like 60 women. And then me at the end, you know, it's like, I felt like I was in prison or something, man. It's like, oh. I'm glad to hear Scotty B never went full suit. You know? No, I no, I did. <laughs> this story get this story gets really weird. Oh no! I, um, <laughs> I still going. I I worked three years as an operator. Um, I was good. 
I was smarter. I was better. I was, you know, I was fired up. I was making money. It was, it was kind of cool, you know. And um, a promotion for an operator was to go to Disneyland. You would work for AT&T. I was working for Pacific Telephone at the time. You'd go to Disneyland, work at AT&T's America the Beautiful exhibit. So I was an exhibit host working for AT&T at Disneyland, and they moved me to Newport Beach to be closer to Disneyland because I told them it was too far to commute. So I'm living in Newport Beach, surfing all day long and working at Disneyland at night. It was pretty fun (laughs) and working for AT&T. So I worked there for a year, and then they promoted me again and made me a business office manager. In comes the suit. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I ran a business unit for Pacific Telephone. And uh, then they promoted me again. And uh, it was just, you know, the next level in that same rung. And then they promoted me again. And uh, this time they promoted me to go to work on a headquarters staff up in San Francisco to write methods and procedures so i got promoted to go work on the headquarters staff for pacific telephone up in san francisco i owned a house they bought my house and then paid to move me to san francisco and uh <laughs> wow yeah that's a thing i i i went in you know i was really i mean these are the squarest people on earth man and I worked in the financial district in San Francisco in 50-story buildings. Um, suited up. I looked good, though. <laughs> hey, I looked good, though. You know, as much as I say I hate to see you in a suit, I kind of would love to. There's something about it. A good suit, especially. It makes you really feel put together. I was... Um, God, this is a, this is story gets really weird, but... Um, we still haven't even gotten there. I I got promoted again from this headquarters staff. I was made a financial manager for AT and T, and I had thirty. I had thirty people that worked for me. I managed thirty million dollars a day in eleven different states, and it was about moving money. Move it from this this location. They collected it at a store. Moved to this bank and send it back to New Jersey and but I learned a lot you know I learned a lot about business and it was a very interesting time so um long story I can't be any shorter I don't know how to do it I I had a drug problem I was doing a lot of coke and I was moving and shaking and but I was in the top 5% of all of the managers in the whole country. So they were paying me bonus money and shit, and I was moving and shaking, and they liked me for that. Is this the 80s? Yes. And um, I, I, I was struggling at this point in time. I'm snorting it before I go to work. I've got it laid out in my... The, my lap drawer of my desk, you know, I'm doing it in the bathroom. It was not fun. I was trying to maintain at that point in time. And every day I would go and I would buy this 
instant scratch-off lottery tickets in this Hallmark gift store, which is right next to my office building. And I played 10 or $20 every day. And this one day, uh, I was having a really bad fucking day. And I bought $20 worth of tickets, and I scratched off a few of them, and I scratched a few more, and I did, just didn't really pay any attention to it. Went upstairs in the elevator, went into the bar, put my San Francisco Chronicle down, my car keys... And my lottery tickets down on the bar, I ordered a drink, I went in the bathroom, did my thing, came back out, and the bartender's looking at me, and she says, Scott, did you look at your tickets? Um, I said, well, no, not really. And she said, you need to come over here. And I said, well, is my drink ready? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, she, and, and she pushed the tickets towards me, and, and it was $100,000. I won. $100,000 on an instant scratch-off lottery ticket. I'm like, oh, great. I've already got a three-and-a-half-gram-a-day habit. So I only lasted really a few more days at work. I'd been there for 14 years, and I ended up, um, they let me quit, basically. But um, That is wild, because yeah. I kind of assumed that at some point your like love for the art would be what pulled you out of the business world, but you just got like a, like a prompted out. You just got handed this amount of money that was like, here, you can go do whatever you want now. Yeah, you, it basically at that point in time, it's, um, you're going to see this as some sort of an incredible inspirational message or you're going to kill yourself. Yeah. You know, I remember, you know, my, my boss said, um, you come clean out your desk tomorrow. And, um, I had gone to the lottery office and they gave me $80,000 and they keep 20. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I'm sitting there in the parking lot in what was my private parking space. You know, now they're kicking me out. I'm sitting there and I've got the rear view mirror set like this and it's looking, I'm looking at myself, you know, talking to myself. That's all I really had at that point in time. And I had my checkbook sitting in front of me, and I had $86,000 in my checking account, and I had about an ounce of Coke in my lap. And I remember looking in the mirror saying, I will never run out of money. I will never run out of drugs again. You're like, holy Heavy. shit, man. It was... Uh, quite a moment you know it didn't take long before you hit bottom and so I, I I did a bunch of different things I um was playing a lot of golf and um I had a couple of friends that were golf pros and they were a little wild like me but um really talented but nobody would sponsor them because they're just too wild you know mm -hmm. They saw golf as an art form. Which I think it not is. A, not, not as a business, really. And um, so I had all this money, and I'm like, why me, man? I said, you know, look, I was born privileged. You know, I'm white. I come from a great neighborhood. I have a great education. Everything in my life has been really good. My parents love me. 
Why me? The odds of winning $100,000 on an instant scratch-off ticket were 1 in 57 million. Now, it's got to get your attention. You know, I'm just like, holy crap. So I finally came to the, the realization that, or felt that I had come to a realization that um, the reason it was gifted to me was so that I could help fulfill somebody else's dream. So I had these, these friends that were golf pros that wanted to go out and compete, and it takes money to do that. So I, sponsor, I sponsored them, and I, I paid for everything, you know, and I also worked as their caddy. So I went to U.S. Open qualifying, went to Pebble Beach, um, played at Olympic Club, you know, everywhere. Yo, and, I had no idea about any of this. <laughs> oh, yeah, and, and I played golf all the time. I was a four, sometimes five handicap, and... Every dollar I spent on on the golf pros and basically paying myself as a as a caddy um, was all deductible. They considered it gambling losses and considered my winnings for the hundred grand to be a gambling winning. So the twenty grand I played it, paid in taxes, they gave back to me because of the deductions from playing golf. <laughs> win win in my neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Scotty, be so, playing the system. Uh, that was really playing the system. Let me see. So that ended. Um, got myself clean. And was married at this time to a woman who was pretty wealthy. And she just said to me, look, you got yourself straightened out. What do you want to do? You do anything you want. She said, you've mentioned that you would like to do some acting and modeling work. Why don't you just try it? I'm like, really? I was... 37 I think at the time and she said yeah so I did and um, I was really successful at it I did a bunch of TV commercials I did I was always working in magazines and well, I got a ton of really crazy photographs but um, it was great I went on three or four different cruises where I was a model on a ship that went to all of these exotic places. And it went pretty well. I, I did it for 10 years, and I got to be one of the top five men in my age range and and basic look in, in the Bay Area. And um, my ex had a financial... We had a financial planner, and he called her one day, and he said... Look, I'm on the board of directors for the Concord Pavilion, and they're looking for um, a director. And Scott has financial background. He has entertainment experience at this point in time. Would he be interested? And I said, let me think about it. Yes. (laughs) So um, it was, you know, through the affiliation with this board member that I was given this this particular it wasn't offered as a job to anyone yet and um they hired me and i became the executive director for the concord pavilion and that uh, bill graham i don't know if you guys knew who that was he was like the most famous rock and roll promoter of of that time and um 
he was the promoter for our building. So all of the commercial shows that came through in the summer were promoted by him, and we just ran the building. But there were cultural things that were designed for the community and children that I created, that I produced. And one of those things, I mean, we did symphony and all different kinds of dance and a whole lot of things. But um, in doing dance, I just, I fell in love with it. And I had started taking photographs just kind of casually. But here I am, I'm, I'm the boss, I'm the director, so I can be wherever I want when the dancers are there, when they're rehearsing. And um, I used to sit with the artistic directors and the choreographers and they would say, if you want to learn about dance photography, watch, watch, here it is. Here's that moment. There's that moment where they're completely connected, where they're weightless or the emotional content is. So I learned how to shoot dance photography and motion from a dancer's perspective, not from a classroom. Much and like the, uh, the surfing perspective of sitting from the beach that we were talking about earlier. Just you got to do it. Just yep. Pick it up and go for it. You know, and I don't think you took a lot of classes, did you? In your photography, videography, you zero. Just, you just figure it all out. And oh gosh, it just um, for me the dance world was such um, a sensible transition from what I learned one. About, a, about being a surfer, about that attachment to the energetic line that's provided to you and each and every wave is different, you know, and you're, you're reading the subtleties. Golf is the same way. Oh, yes. Every, I'm finding every that goal, out firsthand. Every, every terrain is different and the subtleties of learning to go with the flow and reading how water moves down this way and that's how the ball's going to break and... Then, you know, with dance, realizing that dancers move the same way with the same desire that surfers do. They use centrifugal force. They use gravity. They use the zero gravity moments. And it was just, it was really attractive to me. And um, I found that what was lost that was given to me from surfing was something that came back to me in photographing movement. And um, I don't know. I just, I don't know an F stop from a bus stop. <laughs> so wait, that, that leads into a question that I had for you, Scott. Between surfing, uh, your time in ceramics, your time in golf, even your time in business, and then the dance and all of that, there's a, a quote from Miyamoto Musashi that says like, if you know the way broadly, you will see it in all things. You know, do you feel like that from you knowing that connection in surfing, that there was a seamless transition that no matter what thing you picked up next, you could just see the way in all of it? Yes, absolutely. Yes, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. It does not matter what it is. The connectability is present in everything. So it, it, it should be, as you just said, seamless because life is just change, period. And it goes back to your father 
and the quote that he told you about doing everything 100%. If you're going to do one thing 100% and you get it dialed in and then you go to the next thing and you give it 100%, you're going to be able to conquer whatever it is that you focus on 100%. Jamal, I have to pay you... I mean, I feel this both about... I feel this about both of you that my... um, Admiration is is extremely high, but um, you in particular during the the training period of becoming a firefighter was so grueling and was such an enormous transition from what you had been doing. Definitely, and it yet, definitely and was. yet, the the dedication was just really impressive. Thank you. you. Know, it was like it was like the fucking thirties hit, and suddenly we see ourselves as adults. Yep. I I think I mean I feel like twenties. You know I learned so much, but at, at, up in, at the beginning of, of thirty, all of a sudden I had a a different impression of myself. For I'm not sure what reason in particular, but it just seems that was the timeline. Yep. And even the the grueling parts of it, like my academy was pretty rigorous. I went to a private academy where they do things that are a lot more heavily focused on physical training than other places are. And like, I mean, obviously Casey and I are very active. So like I leaned into that and it was great. I got that that part of it. It was definitely, there were days where I was up at 5am. Like, I can't even believe I'm doing this right now. Like I could just be like chilling in Baja with the boys. (laughs) Like I was like, I'm up at five in the morning doing push-ups on this like cold ground. But that part I leaned into and I like learned to love very quickly, but to what you were saying like the transition from what my life was of just like zero timeline, just chilling, doing whatever whenever to like waking up at 4 a.m. and shaving my face every day for 14 weeks was just so it was so different, but that was the thing. I wanted to just have that acceptance of like this is what you want this is what it's going to take. And since this is what it's going to take, just lean into it, like learn to love it, you know, like learn to love something that's completely new to you and doesn't feel right at all because you've just been a surf bum for the last 10 years, which was sick. How how stupid is it of us as human beings to make a decision to do something and then half-ass it and expect something different, you know? No, I, I, that, that, that was really my point is when I went from the ceramics environment to the telephone company, it was very similar in that it was it's such an incredible transition of environments, but that's what it took to shake me up adequately to get moving in a different direction. Yeah. No, I, I understand that feeling. That's when I wanted to start surfing. And there's no better way if if I've been snowboarding as much as I did and the way that I saw my snowboarding progression take off than to move to Baja, find an opportunity, which is literally how we met when David Biner had K38 Surf House and I was trying to learn how to surf. We did, first of all, all the boys moved to California where there's waves year round and then found out that you know, there's an even doper spot that is kind of gnarly, but if you, if you're into that style, then Mexico is where it's at. And so we started coming down here visiting. And as soon as I had the opportunity where he was like, I'm going to Indo, I need somebody to run my business down here. 
they can live at my place for free. It would cost absolutely nothing, a little bit of pay, and you just get to surf every day and check some people into hotels or an Airbnb. Then it was like, all right, all in, 100%, moving there, buying boards, getting wetsuit, living there full time, like Mexican phone number, everything, like not hanging out with anybody all summer in the water at 5, 6 a.m. every single day, last one out of the water, and just putting 100% into years later. Yeah. reap in the in the benefits of being able to surf yeah that's when i was up north in tahoe that's when jake and i had first gone north and i remember i would just like get to check in with you every once in a while and i'm like i had been to the surf house obviously before we had left to go north and i was like this guy is really just living full time in the beach he's not even on the beach he's in, in the beach, the beach. <laughs> you know i was like he's and going for it i love it like <laughs> yeah and i had the ranger and Scotty B lives in the same camp as the Airbnb was, the K38 Surf House. And my house that I was living in was basically 37.5. It was half of a kilometer, which is less than half of a mile away. And I didn't have any homies. I think D-Dub came down to visit. He's Mikey D's, big head for a little while. And so it was just me and Scotty. And every time I came here or anytime I needed something, we would somehow work out some type of communication. And there was a long time period where we didn't, I don't even know if to this day we've exchanged a dollar monetarily. It was always, I'd go up to the States and he'd like some certain things and I'd bring them down here. And then he would have some certain stuff for me, roasting coffee. And I would share with the guests of the Airbnb, give the whole breakdown. Welcome to the house. This is what it is. This is what's going on. There's a guy at Studio 4, Scotty B. He's got coffee. He's got anything you need. He can help you out, you know, with the entire area and any, any questions that you might have or any help that you might need. And it's just like being able to coincide with someone from the area that lives there and combo that was like how our relationship started. And like those, those were really incredibly positive times. I mean, I, we just laughed our asses off all the time. It was it. It was the very upside of what this is all about. Mm-hmm. And in my life, it was the main focus was eliminating all bills, figuring out a way to not have to spend anything if you're not going to have any income and figure out how to just have the net zero exist. So you're just existing. And if you can do that in the area that you want to do and it's through trading and stuff, then this is pre-vlog. This is just like. I want to surf because snowboarding was fun and learning it was amazing and I learned it really well and I tried surfing and it was the same exact feeling of learning something and going through the process of being bad at it and humbling yourself and being connected with the mountains or the ocean and whew. Oh man, that's Here heavy. we are. Here we are now and, and Scotty got to see us evolve, you evolve, the vlog evolve, the content, everything to the, the point where it is now where... We're sitting in the living room with gear, filming a, filming a podcast, getting to share stories and share all of the pre-information that I learned from these years of traveling on my own and how to live off of nothing with people that are also trying to do the same thing that might not even understand how it's possible. And then they get to see that it's that it is possible, actual insight from people who have done it. Yeah, from Absolutely. some from somebody who's been there, man. That's that's what Scotty gave us a lot was insight about new things that were appearing in our lives because we were so young and scotty's like well good thing for you i've already been there let me give you a little <laughs> token about what it was like when i was there you know 
And I'm saying I have rolled up here, like we said in the beginning, no phone calls. Pre-vlog, where obviously he can watch the stuff now and have a take on it. But like pre-vlog, knowing exactly how I'm feeling energetically wise, knowing, you know, like almost like more descriptive than like the horoscopes where they're kind of generic. Like this is spot on down to energy, the way that you're feeling about certain situations that nobody but you knows about. And I've seen every single person that I've brought here and allowed them to meet and then walk away and be like, Oh my God, like kind of giggling, like just going to dial the boy in real quick with a, with a quick alignment, like almost just talking to Scotty B is like an acid trip for some people. They come oh. back changed. And yeah. they're like, yo, I've seen that. Petter, happen. Was, Petter, was, Petter was like, dude, I never talked to myself before, but in another version of an altered bot, like it's game changing. And to just be disconnected, grounded every single day, but so connected, you know, like, are you disconnected when you're <laughs> yeah. that connected? Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's like the, this resounding theme that I've found in life is like, everything is everything, but everything is nothing. There's like this like nihilistic sense where you could say like, does any of this matter? And then you're like, oh, because none of this matters, it all matters. Everything I'm doing right exactly. now matters because I don't know if it actually does or not. You know, yep. so when you when you accept both sides of that, you get to allow so many more cool things into your life because you're just completely open to whatever is going to happen. You're like if you're, you're open to the fact that this might be completely useless and you're open to the fact that you may be the vessel that changes the entire world. But you're never wrong if you're open to it. You're, you know what I mean? There's really no way to be yep. wrong. Yep. I have, a, I have a question for you. This is kind of heavy, but. So, having been familiar with your life before you got into your current career, um, just finding both shoes in the morning was kind of as scary as it would get, you know. <laughs> and and equally as difficult for me a lot of the times. <laughs> I think I left a. Well. I think I left I a. Pa- I left a pair of flip flops at your house for like eight months. <laughs> He's literally they were, the they shoe were too guy. big for anybody, so they, they were safe. Brent took them. Yep. Brent they fit Brent perfectly. Uh-huh. But um, so now you're in a profession where every single time you suit up, you have to be prepared to save lives. Yeah. To, to deal. To deal with the most dire of consequences. And I'm just curious about how you sit with that and uh i think the biggest thing i mean the thing about the fire service is that you have a a chain of command number one you have those people that you can lean on that have been through situations that you're going to go to like especially like the officers at the department i work with are very in tune with the town a lot of them grew up there and a lot of them are just very experienced firefighters so you get to learn from these people like every day And not just about what they do tactically, like when they get to a fire, when they get to an emergency scene, you get to learn just how they operate. And like a huge thing is a focus on training, like training constantly for the worst case scenarios, because there's no timeline on an emergency. Like it could be one in the afternoon or three o'clock in the morning, and you're expected to perform exactly the same. Like you're expected to get up out of your bed at 3 a.m. and go to a scene and be able to recall everything that you've learned up to that point and apply it no matter what time of the day it is. And that can only 
I feel like that can only be done. Like, granted, I've only been in this for a year and a half now, and I give so much respect to the people that have been doing it for so long because they have so much knowledge. But a theme that I've noticed is everybody seems to say, like, you can only keep that standard for yourself if you're willing to put in the amount of time it takes to train constantly. Bingo. Right there. Yeah. Right there. It, it's... It doesn't matter what it is. Again, you know, back yeah. to what my, my father's quote is, if you don't put in the time, man, it ain't nothing but a crime. Seriously. Yeah. Really, that's what you're going to get. It's just bad news. And and that's those things where I've always thought that, uh, that like, quotes that have been around for ages have stuck around for a reason. You know, people call them cliches. And I'm like, well, you know, people wouldn't say something for 2,000 years if it didn't, if it wasn't true. You know? They also wouldn't say them if they weren't founded in science. Yeah, it's true. Like I like the phrase, you reap what you sow. Like that is founded in science. If you put seeds in the ground something's, and you take care of them, something's going to grow. But it, it applies to everything. It's like you're only going to get out of it what you put into it. And they absolutely 100% have known throughout history that the energy of vibrations is incredibly powerful. Yeah. So you reap what you sow also has the ramifications of if you're a nasty mother, you're going to get that back. Oh yeah. It it it, it goes from the literal to the spiritual basically. Yep. Yeah. There's there's lots of conversations um about going to the beach and people leave and they feel refreshed and invigorated and they don't have a clue why yeah that's totally true they didn't realize that walking by the ocean shore is like um supercharged air that comes off of these breaking waves every single one of them you boys out there surfing are being bathed bathed in those things and just there's a lot of other crap out there too. Yeah. And the, and the energy that created those waves also has been traveling for miles and miles and miles and picking things up along the way. And it's, you know, Isn't that you, amazing? It could be it could have traveled from a swell could travel from anywhere in the world. You know what I Tonga. mean? Tonga. Yeah. It's they do. That's real. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing that you can it's picking all that energy up along the way and then eventually it has to stop somewhere, stop in quotes. It has to be transferred somewhere. When it and it transfers when it hits a reef or when it hits a sandbar or when it hits the beach, it compresses. Yeah. What happens is you've got a band of energy that naturally flows along the bottom of the the ocean's floor, no matter what its landscape is, and it has a bandwidth. But when it gets into shallow, that bandwidth gets compressed because there's nowhere for it to go until it hits a reef, and now it forces that energy up out of the surface. I've had there a bunch of people ask me that question in my life. They're like, how do waves even happen? <laughs> like, or like, or they, they want to know like what makes a good spot basically. And I try to give them like my most rudimentary breakdown, but Scotty just described it better than I ever have. You know, what about do waves break at night? Wait, 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 wait. Who asked um, that? I, I sleep right here and I can tell you, yes. Who asked that? Cat. Oh, that, yeah, that was a T. I knew it. I, I, I didn't want to air him out for two times on one podcast without confirming first, but that was a T-cap <laughs> quote. 
I mean, the guy rips. Yeah, so. yeah, get, yeah. Get did, aired out. I did call the guy out. starting to do airs. In, in, in his defense, this is one I said. Oh, you guys will love this. I went with my one of my ex wives up to Tahoe, and um, I don't know shit about the snow. I mean, I grew up at the beach, so we went up there, and it snowed like a beast at night. I mean, it was deep, and I'm like. You'll I, have that. I didn't hear anything. <laughs> <laughs> What's the sound of two snowflakes falling, Scott? <laughs> wow, that's you'll awesome. Hear, you'll hear Scrizzy out there hurting his back. Yeah, yeah. Or he's a oh, beast I, on I, the shovel. I heard guy. they were building a, a statue after him. Yes, in Tahoe. Yes. Yeah, the great shoveler. The great shoveler. Nobody does our like hero, Scrizzy. Our hero. It's like giving the Medal of Honor from like. We just found Scrizzy's keys yesterday in the Narvi that he lost last year's Narvi tour and was tripping over for weeks in the front seat with six GoPro batteries. Daly was trying to find something else, found six GoPro batteries, and pulled out Scrizzy's keychain with garage door opener, oh six my different gosh. house keys, toolbox did, stuff. Did you lo- find that ounce of weed that I lost? <laughs> 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 Not in there. I had it right next to his keys. Yeah, right by the batteries. <laughs> hey, wow. I got a good one. I got a good one. I got a good one. This is a theory. I need you boys. We're here for you. We are. All right. Put on your water hats. I've lived here for 10 years, and believe me, I spend a lot of time on Channel 4 paying attention to what's out there, looking at all of the marine life that cruises by. But the annual thing are the whales. Oh, yeah. So up until the last two years, um, you see a boatload of them right there. And this year, going down, nada. Oh, this is... I thought I I saw a spout. And now coming back, which is the month of March, they go down in December and they come back in March, give or take, depending upon currents and shit like that. So... What I'm wondering is their absence, which breaks my heart, man. I paid extra for that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Is I believe that because the West Coast has been so battered with storms that the the natural currents that would be there, that they would follow back up, that would be full of food and nutrition for their return voyage with the baby, has now been scattered is the term they use that the storms scattered that stuff. And then secondly, they've been reporting that they're expecting there's a a very strong possibility of a volcanic eruption in Alaska, which is where the whales are going. And they have these sensors that are floating out there. And the the sensors read the movement of magma, which is what causes a volcanic eruption. It's the movement of magma that's gotten blocked up. So what I'm wondering is if the whales can sense the pending danger of this volcanic eruption, which would definitely mess up their their feeding grounds. And because of all of the... the I mean, it was super 100-year type storm cycles... I wonder if they've just rerouted. 
Well, I'm sure Jamal's going to touch on what's been going on as well. Yeah, well, first, that's what I was going to say. There's, I mean, if they're not, it's different in on the West Coast. I don't know if they're, they've been washing up dead like they have in New Jersey, but there's been multiple oh, throughout this winter, and I believe even started in the fall, multiple huge whales washing up on the beach dead in New Jersey. Um, and a lot of people are attributing it to some seismic blasting that they're doing, seismic blasting or seismic testing. Disclaimer, I am not a biologist. This is bro science. but And this is <laughs> me skimming articles that I've read. But I think there's a lot of underground drilling and things of that nature. And they have to test for those things. And the seismic God, waves that they use God to test. God only knows what they're doing. Um, I, yeah, I think that's affecting marine life very heavily. All right, we got 30 minutes left. We got to do one more clap. C-dub. Scotty B. Oops, that was weak. Jamal Malcolm Cunningham. There he is. Do you say that because there's an imposter that's another Jamal? Funny story, I actually went to high school with a kid whose name was also Jamal Cunningham. He was two years younger than me. His first name is Arnold, but his middle name was Jamal, and he went by Jamal. And I always thought it was odd because I was like, we like knew each other. And I was like, how is this kid just going to go by my name? Like he already, you know, and it was funny because he was on the basketball team and I had a history teacher once he was like six, four, six, five. And I had a history teacher once who I said that to him, like, why would he go by my name? And he goes, well, Jamal, if you were a six, five black, uh, black kid on the basketball team, would you want to be Arnold <laughs> or Jamal? And I was like, you know what, man? You're I can't wrong. really argue with You're that. <laughs> you got to be he, he six, eight wrong. to be Arnold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> straight up scotty i had i had a question for you here because i know that between the pavilion and just getting to be in the bay throughout a crazy time in music and just being around all that do you have a top three f- favorite concerts that you've ever seen oh that's an interesting question um well the I would say, as opposed to a concert, I, I would just say, a performance. I would, I would say any moments, kind of artistic performance. You know, um, I would say that my opinion is: uh, you're asking me a question about the music, the vibe, the whole. And uh, when when you ask me that question, I'm thinking, for example. I went to the San Francisco airport and I was responsible for picking up the the Kirov ballet from Russia. And um oh, yeah, to awesome. take them back to the hotel, uh, I arranged a dinner party for them and so I remember things like that. Um those yeah. really stand out in my mind, but there were there were moments within shows that were mind-boggling. Um Stevie Ray Vaughan played with B.B. King once. And um, they duetted uh, at, one, at one part. And holy shit, it was so amazing. It was really amazing because um, the building was sold out. Every ticket was gone. I mean, this was, this was really a big show, and it was, it was worth it. But uh, they... Uh, our theater was built in the round, 
uh, if the seating was built in the round in the stage. So there were seats behind the stage that were covered with a curtain that they opened up and let us sit in because the building was sold out and there were still so many people that wanted to watch. And I was like 10 feet away from them. Oh, 10 feet away from two of the greatest people to ever touch a guitar duetting. And you could have sworn that they were unaware that anyone else in the world existed other than the two of them. It was so... Flow state. Just... It was just pure. Really, really, really pure. Um, That was pretty outstanding. Um, Carlos Santana... um, his home was very close. It was in uh, Mill Valley or Tiburon or one of those just a little bit north of San Francisco. So he had a, a huge following in the Bay Area. And whenever he would, he would play our building, he, he was exceptionally excited because um, it was his home. You know, and there were so many fans that were friends of his that were there. So it was very, very exciting. And God, he just used to play his ass off. And it was, again, very pure, very, very uh, driven to give 100%. Um, I can remember moments like uh, there was a... Oh, you like this one. I ran a performing arts scholarship program. So we gave scholarships to high school seniors that were going on to pursue um, a four-year education in the performing arts or to a conservatory to study the arts. And um, one of the, the ways that we used to raise money to do this was I held an auction, a dinner auction every year and would sell the tables to VIPs for stupid money and but what I would do is I would collect a signature, an autograph, from every performer that came through. Because I was the boss. I could go down and just hey, would you sign this for me? She said, sure, okay. And the JVC Jazz Festival was a summer thing that happened every year. And they would mix the artists and whoever was hot, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, in this one show, Miles Davis was in the show. I knew you were going to say that. And um, it was, he was, it was towards the end of his career, as it turned out, but it was just like, oh, shit, man. Stevie Ray Vaughan and Miles Davis were my thing, you know, and I rarely did it, but I got front row center seats for my daughter and myself, and we were like, five feet away from Miles Davis. He's standing on the stage, and he was being such a jerk. Um, He was playing with his back to the audience. So he's playing to the back of the stage, and he walked over, and we had trees and and shrubs up on the stage to make it look pretty, and he walked over, and he was standing behind a shrub to hide himself. He was just being really weird, and he came back over to the center of the stage, and he's just like five feet away from my daughter and I, and we're just like, Oh my God, there he is. And he turns and he takes his nose and he goes like that and blows his nose on the stage. And it's like two feet away from me. I'm like, I'm not talking that. I don't care who blew that. (laughs) So it was like, oh my God, he's human. 
So anyway, I've got this T-shirt, and the T-shirt, there were like 12 different artists that were in this show, so there were a lot of signatures on this T-shirt. It was very valuable, and I saved one place in the very center of the T-shirt so that Miles could sign that because that would be like, it would be so valuable because he didn't sign anything. He was a real jerk about that. Yeah, he's a pretty eccentric guy. So I catch him. I catch him before the show, and he is surrounded by a bodyguard, um, a nurse, and an agent. So he's got people shuffling up, and I said, "Miles, Miles, will you sign? Miles, I'm just, I'm desperate to get this thing signed. Will you sign this?" And he wouldn't look at me. And his manager said, "Miles said he would sign this after the show." All right. So the show finishes, man. I book it down there. I'm down right in front of his dressing room. And again, it's the same entourage guarding him. And they said, move away, move away. And I said, but Miles said he would sign this. And he said, please, the, the doctor's going in with him. So the doctor went in with him too. And they go into the dressing room. And I'm, they're in there for 20 minutes. And I'm sitting around. And I asked one of the band members. I said, hey, man, will you go in and just ask Miles to sign this? And they all looked at me like, you fucking crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's Miles Davis. You know, they're not going to do that. And... So finally, one of the one that I got the youngest guy he was the keyboard player. He was astounding, but he's new. And I said, "Man, come on! It's for the scholarship kids. It was like you when you were younger, man." And uh, he said, "All right, all right." So he walks in there so sheepishly, and he was in there for five minutes or so. And he comes back out and he said, uh, "Miles said he would sign that when he leaves the building." And I said, "All right." so I waited and I waited and finally the door opens up and it's the same thing they're they're rushing him up the staircase and everything and they take him out back to where his limousine's right by the door and they open up the door to the limousine and Miles steps in and I stepped over and blocked the door from being closed I said Miles won't you please sign this and this this bodyguard guy he was like 6'5 he was huge he comes over and he said I'm gonna ask you once to move away from that door (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I said, man, Miles said he would sign this. He said, that was your once. Now move. He just pushes me out of the way and slams the door, and Miles drives away. He fucking died a week later. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah, there's a moral to this story. <laughs> Heavy you better, you better sign my shirt. <laughs> so when the auction came, I auctioned it off, as the last known item that Miles Davis refused to sign. <laughs> that is a legendary spin. <laughs> that was so funny. That is oh sick. My God. Wow. That was that's that awesome. was a good one. So you asked me about the experiences at the pavilion. That that was a good one. Scotty, that's exactly what I was looking to get out of that because I'm I'm better for knowing that story. That is amazing. I got to interview um Carlos Santana. Oh, really? Uh, the, our building got our building was built by Frank Gehry, and Frank Gehry is one of the preeminent modern architects anywhere. He built the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain, and the Disney Building in Los Angeles. And he's famous for the stainless steel. Well, it's brushed aluminum, is what it is actually. These metal things, but anyway, he built our building. And 
he won his first national design award for our, our building and its design. So that was in 1975, and 20 years later, the building was being remodeled to go from 8,500 seats to 12,500 seats. And Mr. Gary, Frank Gary, the architect, agreed to do the remodel as well. So in remodeling this building, they asked, the, the board of directors asked me to go out and interview different popular artists to get their opinion about the pavilion and about this change that was taking place. And one of those artists was Carlos Santana. So I went to the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco. Uh, he was finishing a sound check and he came up and he met me in this little alcove up in the upstairs and it was just he and I and the cameraman and he was so he had just finished playing so he was really um he was like ethereal like you know his playing takes him to a different place and he sat down with me and he was so gracious he uh hugged me and um I told him, you know, here are the questions that I'm going to ask you. You know, and he said, okay, okay. And I sat with him. God, he was just so warm and just looking right into my eyes and not giving me any rock star stuff. And he just had like nine Grammy Awards given to him for, I can't remember what the name of that album was, but I said, what are your earliest memories of the Concord Pavilion? And he said, he said, my father was a jazz musician, and he played with Leonard Bernstein in the orchestra at the pavilion. And he said, man, it was so amazing because there were cows up on the hills mooing with the symphony playing on the, on the, on the stage. So he had really positive things that way. And he said, also, the pavilion is very special to me because my two greatest heroes died and we're last seen here. And he said, Miles Davis and Bill Graham. Bill Graham was the, the promoter, and Bill Graham made Carlos Santana famous. You know, he put him on the bill for tours and things like that, and Carlos was really grateful for it. Bill Graham was flying away from a, a concert. It was, brutal. it was raining brutally, and he had his helicopter in our parking lot. And I was coming back from my car and he walked past me and I looked back at him and the rain was coming in in circles like that underneath the lights and his helicopter uh, ran into a power pole, a PG&E power pole just outside of Novato up by San Francisco and he died immediately. So Carlos said, my two greatest inspirations in my life died leaving here. So when I play, I channel them I use their energy when I'm here and man it was like the the question could not have been more perfect for him it was really as opposed to Huey Lewis remember Huey Lewis yeah Huey news? Lewis in the news man he just won he'd won that album sports had won a million Grammys and he was just hot as hell but his his crowd was a bunch of lame brains man yeah a bunch of yuppies. A bunch of, <laughs> yeah, a bunch of women with fake boobs and latex skirts and shit. You know, <laughs> that's mean. I'm sorry, that's not all true. But um, <laughs> I had to go interview him because he's also a Bay Area guy and he has a million fans. And 
I, I told him the two questions, and he says, before the camera's rolling, he goes, look, man. He goes, I know what you want me to say, and I will. He says, but it's at another damn building in the summer tour. They all look the same. I just want to go home, play uh-huh. baseball with my boys. <laughs> yeah, that's perspective, man. It you was know? so interesting. Wow. That's so much Scotty B knowledge in, in one day to take in. We've taken in so much over the years, I, and I feel I, like I've taken I give in you, so much in two hours. Let me give you one more, one more. Really, I just remembered a profound moment. Um, one of the men that was a mentor of mine, he was on the board of directors for the pavilion. He was a former mayor in the city of Concord. He was uh, an ex, he was Major General uh, Army. And he and my boss, my principal mentor, were very close friends. And subsequently, they were friends of mine. And we used to play golf all the time. But he grew up hating the commies. You know, his mission in life as a Major General was to blow those, the commies up. So we booked on a tour, the Red Army Chorus and Dance Ensemble. There were 80 musicians, and there were about 50 dancers. There were so many of them. And they were fronted by a man who was also a general, but he was the number two cosmonaut in space from Russia. Whoa. So they gave me the privilege of meeting this airplane that was all just the Red Army at the San Francisco airport. And it was real big pomp and circumstance, man. It was like, my, I took my major general board director guy with me, the one who had fought communism all his life. And he's all in his, he's got fucking badges and shit everywhere. And the, the doorway opens up on this Russian plane and the, down comes the number two cosmonaut that was in space for Russia, and he's the front guy for this whole ensemble, and he's in his military shit. And he keeps walking down. So my general and this general meet for the first time, both of them having spent their whole lives dedicated to annihilating each other on a humanitarian mission that was put together by music and dance. So it was one of those things where you discover that all the missiles on the planet ain't going to solve a thing, but that we moments culturally that help us realize we're all the same are the only things that really, really matter. Wow. That was so beautiful. I don't even know if we can go any further than that after the unity that I just felt. (laughs) I got I to gotta go put coins in my car parking meter, I think. <laughs> well, I feel like there's still one question that all the people want to know. Is, has Scotty B ever strapped into a snowboard? Ooh. No. Um, it harkens me back to the, the leash hadn't been invented moments. Um, when I skied, I skied really well. I, mean, I could ski backwards and shit. And I always treated the runs like they were a wave. You know, I would go this way and rock it up the side of that thing and, you know, get a little, little teeny bit of air. But 
uh, snowboarders were, were trash. You know, you were like skateboarders, basically. They didn't want your shit in the mall, and they didn't want you on the run carving that stuff up. And God help you if you bump into a bunny, man. Oh, yeah, we talked about that last episode. Yeah. No, it, it, seriously, um, when I skied, um, I lived in the Bay Area, and I used to uh, sugar bowl. That was my place, man. Welcome to Sugar Bowl. (laughs) (laughs) That was was a lot of fun, but um, it wasn't so much fun when it would snow and you're trying to go home and, oh, my God, it's scary and it's like traffic for... Oh, God. The I-80. Oh, the I-80 will give somebody nightmares. Don't tell me you drove up in a two-wheel drive car. (laughs) I wonder wonder what the, the, the percentage of murder is on... I-80. It's probably pretty high. It's up there. It's that gotta suicide. be. Well, you've seen enough of my snowboarding videos to, I mean, understand surfing and the snowboarding and culture and, like, you've seen the development of what I've done on my YouTube with my snowboarding and still trying to hold surfing in and, like, what do you, what do you think about the whole thing that has come to where it is now compared to where we were chilling into early 2017 before more than just one Instagram post a day was a requirement. Um, just very interesting adjunct into that. When I started my photography work, um, Facebook didn't exist. So if you were a successful visual artist, your option was to go hang it in a gallery. And, you know, maybe 200 people are going to see the stuff in a, extended period of time Facebook came along and all of a sudden I would post a photograph of a dancer and she would see it and she would tag her friends and her friends tagged her friends and then one of them knew a dancer in Paris and all of a sudden I got 5,000 friends and my shit is famous like overnight it was so incredible so it, it, it wasn't without a lot of work. I mean, every single like that I got, I followed up and found out who liked me, and I would send them a note and say, you know, thank you so much for your... Da, da, da. I, I, it was, I put in the time. You know, I worked Facebook, but Facebook literally made me famous, honestly, and it made, a, it made the dancers that I worked with famous as well. It was, you know, it was, it was a very lovely synergy. I don't remember how I got into that tangent. Oh, about you and where you've taken it to. And these, this is just, this is shameless right here. This is just a way for you to stay in touch with all your friends. But it works. It's a way for you to communicate with them all as well from the outside view because there's a lot of things that you've seen. I'm so impressed with this. So impressed with it. I mean, I... So back back to your 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 I think your question is how do I feel about the progression of it how do I feel about the snowboarding um is that is that what you mostly just like what what do you want to say to the people that you know watch my stuff as an, as an outsider or as somebody who's behind the scenes sees every aspect of it and has seen the growth and knew me beforehand trying to live on nothing versus now still trying to live on nothing but having to have big budget for what we're doing to even exist. Well, I, I think that 
Anyone that expects anything out of what they're going to do needs to have vision. You need to have the ability to see where you are and where you intend to go. If you don't have a vision, then finding your pathway is going to be very, very, very difficult. And watching... I don't know. I, 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 lo- I love to hear you say it's not all biscuits and gravy. You know, because it's the exact opposite thing of what we're really trying to do. We're trying to create the illusion that this, this happy face and all of these things come so gracefully. And the truth of the matter is it's a very difficult learning curve and... It's just, it's impressive as hell um, to have seen it all unfold. But I believe that there, there's, how many are there YouTubing and, and podcasting and... Countless. Oh, oh my God, it's just, it's, it's worse than Costco. <laughs> you know, it's... I mean, it happened with photography, too. God bless it. I mean, anybody can, make, can take a good picture now. I mean, a really good picture. They can make great videos without anything other than just being there at the right time. But I think that the thing that I find to be the most essential and, and common ingredient in all success stories is they're authentic, they're unique, and the intention behind the process is one that's not driven by the economic side of it, but rather realizing that the spiritual nature of words and vibration and, and leadership by example fuel the economic results. Economic success at any whatever we consider success to be, everybody's gonna be different, but it's fueled by a job well done. You know, that's yes. that's what gets us there. And that's what I you know and I don't I don't mean to be slighting you in any way whatsoever, because I have seen you as being a very key element in the development of what, what he's has going on right now. Um, I watch I'm a watcher man that's what I do now that's what being old is all about just open your eyes and pay attention man I analyze I look at a video and it's like I'm not just being entertained I'm gonna cut that mother up you know mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna look at the face of the kid two rows back who's hoping to God he gets a sticker yeah you know I'm watching the faces of people walking up the beach in the middle of nowhere in the dark to go, it is you, Casey. Oh, my God. My wife loves you. My kid loves you. I'm like, are you kidding me? How far-reaching is that? That's from a kid who was about eight to an adult married woman and the husband. Now, that's an age range, and I'm not going to give up my age right here, 72, almost 73, but I'm, I'm very interested. You know, uh, some of the goofing off doesn't hold my interest, but 
I'm so glued to how people respond. Um, that's that's more my interest right there. Yeah, you snowboard like a champ, big deal. The imagery just keeps getting better and better. By the way, I mean, I mean, it's just as he signed that last autograph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Cito, you got to stay after hours, boy. You're gonna catch that Scotty B curse. <laughs> I used to watch. I used to watch our dancers sign autographs for for little kids and, and see their eyes just light up. And I'm, I'm like watching you giving away swag, and it's like, hey, brother, it's good to see you. Thanks so much for you know watching and everything. And they're like, are you kidding me? I get up every morning hoping you dropped a new one. You know, I mean, there's the validation right there. I mean, you go to places and there are people saying, hey, I'll hook you up, dog. You know, call me up here. Come to this mountain. Come to this mountain. It's not like, fuck, here he comes again. Jesus. It's all in the stoke. It's all all in in the stoke. You know, and that's an interesting thing. We were talking about that. Um, It's all in the stoke. It really defines living with love in your heart. Because you can't stoke if you're not passing that with love. It just doesn't, it, it's not stoke. It's yep. fake. It's this guy, cheap. This guy's not even stoked. <laughs> Dude, this guy's folk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Well, we got, we got to wrap this up at some point here because the sun's going down. Oh, it's no. getting glassy. Oh, no. Bro, can you please go surf for me? I'm losing my mind. We're going on a surf trip soon. Absolutely. I might have to just come see you, Scotty B. I might just fly to San Diego, do a quick Baja rip. Come on down. Come on down. You'll know I'm coming. Don't you get some kind of special pass because you're a life saving mother? Yeah, something like that. We'll see about it. Something like that, yeah. (laughs) I'm going to sit up here with the pilot. All right, well, it's been an absolute honor. What a treat, man. Learned a lot about you that I didn't even know from seven, eight, nine years of hanging out. It's. To spread that knowledge with the people, we we are grateful. We're blessed. We thank you, Jamal. You too. You guys had actually a portion there where I'm glad you were here because I didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> wow, that was good, huh? You will have that. That was re- you will have that. You know, and this this was, I mean, at least to my ears and my visual right here on the computer, it was really strong. Really strong. Huge shout out to Petter, absolutely coming through and dialing this whole thing in, trying to make it super seamless. Does not get better than Petter. Jamal, I love you very much, man, and, and have since the moment we met. And I cherish all of the memories that we've shared. It makes me just quickly think of a photograph of you and TCAP taking a, a little yoga stretch with, with Laura here yep. in the most beautiful lighting. Yep. That was a great day. And I, I love you too, Scotty. It was great to be able to chat with you for a while and catch up while also getting to catch up on your entire life. It's pretty awesome. Oh, man. Uh, next time I, I want to I want to be present. Listen to a little bit more YouTube. But you look good in your big boy pants, man. Hey, thanks, brother. Appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you to the listeners. Um, head over to the You Love to Hear It Instagram. Uh, you Love to Hear It podcast. Y L T H I podcast, and just drop a comment on the photo of the boys and Scotty, and we will pick somebody in the next podcast, and we're gonna give them a hundred dollar gift card to the website to get some You Love to Hear Stoke gear. Get some swag. It's all in the Stoke boys. Uh, who do I see to get paid? <laughs> uh, talk to Rudy. <laughs> Love you, boys. Love you, boys. See you, the next one. See you man. <laughs>